This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, didn't we already have a Galileo Shuttle Crash episode? Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi critique not exactly review show. I am joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! I am Gepwin, I think I forgot to say that this oh, time. Hi Gepwin! <laughs> <laughs> so uh, can we go back and uh, just rewatch Gattaca for this one instead? Yeah, I think so. So, <laughs> in this episode, genetic, genetic augmentation is common, and... <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly kirk's there wait what <laughs> no. and all of a sudden kirk comes in and is like why is everybody genetically augmented i have so much respect for that <laughs> damn it kirk stop being awful <laughs> no this is this episode's completely unrelated to gattaca but i just would like to do gattaca again actually but because <laughs> this is really really bad so far this is probably the worst one we've seen <laughs> yeah it's up there yeah they're, they're, it's, it, it, with time some of the other ones have kind of maybe mellowed about in our minds but yeah it's, it's definitely up there this episode is called metamorphosis for, what metamorphosizes yeah for no reason I, I think there is maybe something to that but it's really kind of like okay <laughs> yeah you could you could maybe call some of it a metamorphosis but not exactly i thought it was going to be about someone turning into a bug yeah that'd be cool get a little antenna and you could skitter about you know yeah it could be you know kafka-esque well i guess maybe 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 you're watching it is kafka-esque yes (laughs) we we are this thing we're doing is very kafka-esque so it's an appropriate episode title (laughs) yeah not even much happens this is going to be short (laughs) all right And the funny thing is, my my synopsis, I was kind of t- tending to actually be lighter on, you know, just in general, because I've just put too much random crap in it. But even then, it's like, wow, this is like really short. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I skipped over sections and then didn't. And then I don't know. It's just too much. And this is written by Gene Alcoon, who normally yeah. is better than this. It's like, what happened? His views about women got into an episode. And duh. Ah, oh, man. And other things, but yeah, mainly women. <laughs> this time we have several, like three notable-ish guest stars. Got Glenn Corbett as Zephyrin Cochran. Wait, is that Zephyrin Cochran, the, the the warp engineer? Yes, it is. Longtime Star Trek fans will know of Zephyrin Cochran as the inventor of the warp drive, and this is the first appearance of that character and this bit of Star Trek world-building history. Yeah, so now we know that someone actually invented warp drive. Yes, it's not just something that happens random. I liked him a lot better in First Contact. More personable there, despite being a raging alcoholic. Eleanor Donahue is Commissioner Nancy Hedford. She was in Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. Yeah, in here she gets like four speaking lines. One of them is kind of just yelling and being upset at things. Yep. I'll get to that later. (laughs) Yeah, she was in a few things. Uh, Corbett was also in a few things, just... uh, bit parts on everything i don't think he headlined much i don't think she headlined much they were around doing random stuff you know we also have elizabeth rogers which is the second time we've seen her come up she played the uh lieutenant who randomly replaced ahura for a single episode she is the voice of the companion the companion the companion the companion sounds like it should be an app (laughs) we're procrastinating Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> it wasn't obvious. All right, we should probably get on to this. Yes. <laughs> Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are on a shuttlecraft transporting Commissioner Nancy Hedford, who was negotiating on some alien planets to prevent a war. Yeah, so it seems like a, you know important stuff. There's a whole war going on, and they're trying to you know uh, just prevent it, and you know everyone's going to die. So you know, intense uh, stakes here. At some point, she contracted a very deadly, deadly, deadly disease that is super, super rare, and they have to get her to the Enterprise in order to heal her so she can get back to her war negotiations. Um, whoops, why isn't the Enterprise, like, at the planet then? No idea, but anyway, <laughs> super important. It's stakes, she's sick, we've got a ticking clock going. So far, mm-hmm. not a bad setup. And uh, they're going to be uh, hooking up with the Enterprise in about four hours or so. But she 
is insufferable and complains about how they didn't inoculate her properly and she needs to get back on her job. She just complains the entire time. It's a very poorly written character. She kind of comes off as a um, uh, a spoiled aristocrat sort of vibe to her. Yeah, a little bit. Whilst she complains, an unknown energy thingy-mabob reroutes the shuttlecraft and forces them to land in an unknown planetoid. Oh no, a swirly thing attacks. Very conveniently, wherever they landed has breathable air and Earth-like gravity, so they jump out and decide to explore around. Also, ladies, stay here. They find that the shuttlecraft is actually in perfect working order. It's just not working. Everything works, but nothing's broken. Scratch that. Reverse it. No, it doesn't work. <laughs> McCoy detects some kind of strange gaseous something, but before they have time to investigate, a man appears awkwardly running towards them, occasionally pausing to shout hello and wave. Yeah, and uh, clearly this guy farted and that's what McCoy picked up. That's why he's running towards them and away from whatever That's what they mean when they say we've detected life signs. Yes. <laughs> Highbrow comedy. <laughs> The man introduces himself as Cochrane, and he seems very surprised to see other people, especially a woman who he describes as like food to a starving man. All of you. Yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, all of you, not just the lady I was just eyeing up here. <laughs> it's just extra creepy. It's just, he's just staring at her. It's like, you're like food to a starving man. All of you are. It's like, oh, are we, <laughs> I didn't know we were that progressive, but okay. Okay, then. Okay, Okay, you're obviously creeping on to her, but you're creeping on all of us, too? We're confused now. Kirk is not having this and demands answers to what in the world is going on. Why are they crashed? Why are there's a random dude here? But Cochran does not want to reveal anything until they go to his nearby home. Yes, come to my cabin in the woods, folks. I have cookies for you. Cochran goes to the house and then explains that he crash-landed on this planet several years ago and has been here ever since. He is initially very evasive about any other questions or details, but eventually Kirk just yells him down, at which point he reveals basically everything, including the existence of something called the Companion. And yeah, there's some back and forth, and there's, you know, it's like, oh, there's a weird glowy thing outside. What's up with that? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, there's this thing, I guess. So, you know, just tell us what's up, guy. Come on. <laughs> so, in fact, Cochran did not crash randomly. He was revealed to be the now famous Zephram Cochran, inventor of Warp Drive. Well, just warp, apparently, not warp drive. They don't say yes. drive <laughs> at any point. <laughs> he disappeared about 100 or so years ago. So he looks pretty young for 150-some years old. I guess we also find out he's like he was 80-something at the time, so you know he's over 200 now. Yep. As an old man, he decided that he would like to die in space. But instead of this, his ship was found by the companion who brought him to this planet, where he was rejuvenated and has been provided for ever since. Functional immortality, okay. Until very recently, when he apparently got really lonely, he told the companion that he needed to be with other humans in the hopes that this would let him go, but instead, it brought Kirk and the others here. This kind of reminds me of the previous episode we covered. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> it's like, yes, well, uh, I need some people here to, to help out with the things. Um, go kidnap some people for me, please. <laughs> This, understandably, upsets Hedford, who freaks out a little bit and lies down because of her illness. And if they don't get her back soon, she's going to definitely die. Yeah, she, you know, there's a sort of hitting thing that, you know, it's like, oh, if she starts having a fever, and then she starts having a fever, that means it's the final stages, they need to get, you know, the ticking clock is coming up and all that. And so, yeah, this is, you know, bad signs. She's going to die. We're going to have a war, which we may or may not care about. Yeah. Let's, let's get back to that war later. <laughs> Kirk sends Spock back to the shuttle to find some way to fight the Companion, and requests Cochrane help them escape, which he is on board with because he's bored of being immortal. Well, I guess I can leave this planet where I don't have to worry about anything. Okay. <laughs> Spock encounters the Companion while working on the shuttlecraft, and he touches it. They need to stop touching things. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my hand in you and let's see what's happening. Because oh god, I'm being electrocuted. Yes, this shocks him, and he is now unconscious. Well, Spock's dead. Just why do they all have to touch everything? You're on alien planet. Stop touching stuff. In fact, you guys just like should go out in spacesuits, even if it is an Earth-like atmosphere. You probably should. Yeah, they make fun of that in Stargate. I remember. <laughs> Back at the house, Kirk has the idea that maybe this companion is capable of curing the commissioner because it was able to de-age Cochran. Cochran says that he's able to communicate with it on some sort of nonverbal mental level, and he calls it to ask. 
He's glowy this. To call it, he basically stands there and clears his mind and a glowy thing appears and then envelops him. And then he stands there with it for a while. Kirk describes it as looking like a loving relationship. It's a blob. Yeah, some, yeah like some sort of pet relationship. McCoy's like, it's more than that. The companion vanishes, leaving Cochrane to report that healing the commissioner is beyond its capabilities, I guess. So escape is now her only chance at survival. So uh, could you tell it to let them leave and they'll come back and visit sometimes? <laughs> Talking is not on their minds, though. Nope. <laughs> back at the shuttlecraft, McCoy finds Spock, who was unconscious, but is very interested in how he was shocked with electricity. McCoy thinks Holy that spokes. anything with electricity can be shorted out. Because uh, a, basically a plasma entity can be shorted out so easily. Yeah, because shorting is not a specific term that applies to circuitry. Yeah. <laughs> it applies to electricity in general. Now, disrupted, I'd agree with that. Anything that has electricity could be disrupted. It could uh, uh, induce a premature discharge, so the uh, you know, separated charges uh, are uh, you know, recombined, and uh, suddenly you, you have your ionized particles are no longer so ionized, and then your, your plasma entity is no longer a plasma entity. But, you know, science. <laughs> <laughs> so they think that this has found them their weapon, so Spock gets a device and says if they turn it on near the companion it will disrupt it or possibly kill it who can say this might kill it we don't know let's turn it on and find out <laughs> cochran's a little bit iffy on killing the thing that's kept him alive for so long but kirk yells at him until he agrees to be bait well, i guess cochran's kind of a pushover hmm. cochran calls the companion again they turn on the thingy-bob. the companion does not like this and immediately destroys it and attacks kirk and spock with mccoy ineffectively yelling at them to you know, stop it because it's killing them. It's, I'm going to choke these guys. and Doctor person, you better stay out. Okay, I'm going to stay over here. I'm going to yell at you. <laughs> Before Kirk and Spock die, Cochran is able to call it away, and Kirk immediately begins complaining about how his life was saved because now he's responsible for this mess. Well, I think there's a lot of responsibility to go around here, uh, Kirk, but I think this latest volume is probably on you. <laughs> but I'd rather die than have to f own up to this being partially my fault. McCoy reminds him that sometimes diplomacy is a thing, and he doesn't always have to try to kill everything they encounter. You don't remember you? Don't you remember that you've been a trained diplomat, not just a guy that goes around killing things all over the universe? Oh yeah. No, no, he doesn't remember that. <laughs> Kirk tells Spock to start mortifying the Universal Translator so that they can try to talk to the companion, and McCoy reminds us that the commissioner is still dying. Just remember, guys, this is high priority here. Let's make sure we hit this up first. The rest of it we can deal with later. We take a brief aside to the Enterprise, where Scotty is trying to find the lost shuttlecraft, and he's pretty good at his job and knows what to do to find them. Excellent. Yep. Good job, Scotty. Back on the planet, they've fixed <laughs> up the Universal Translator. So at least Spock has some technical knowledge to get this working up. <laughs> Apparently, this thing reads brainwaves, then compares those brainwaves to certain universal concepts that are shared by all sentient life in order to translate it into English. Cochrane calls the companion, Kirk uses the translator to translate the companion's thoughts, and with a female voice, the companion is like interested in talking to them for a little bit. Um, I, in, the, in the 60s speak, I think this is the ooh-la-la -la moment, I guess. Because of the female voice, the crew concludes that the companion is in fact in love with Cochrane. Because there can't be the platonic relations between ladies and men. Nope. They try and convince the companion that it is wrong to keep them there, but she refuses to understand, mostly because Kirk is very bad at explaining why it's wrong to keep them there. Keeps going on about how they need freedom and challenge to survive. Kirk, you're, you're on your, your establishment kick again. Like, try to anything else for once. But capitalism. But I can take care of all of your needs and wants for free. But capitalism. We're going to try to, uh, you, know, you know, zap you again. That's not going to work. I don't care anymore. <laughs> capitalism. Cochran asks why they used a female voice for the translator. And Kirk says, we didn't. Male and female are universal constants. So about that. <laughs> The companion is female, it's definitely in love with Cochrane, and they've been having some sort of freaky brain sex. Surprise! Um, um, I th think there's miscommunication between you and uh, the, the energy being Cochrane about 150 years ago. Um, the companion probably should have told you, like, straight up, but you, they did, apparently. Now the crew is, like, 
all okay with this? They're like, oh, now it's sweet, and Cockring sells them all degenerates. It's like, what's, what's wrong with you in the future? Everyone's just dating energy beings, I guess. I'm an old-fashioned guy who dates non-energy beings. Well, you know, if people are interested in energy beings, they're interested in energy beings. If they're not, they're not. I, you know, you don't have to, like, be freaked out by people's uh, preferences, Cochrane. Come on. Also, Hedford is still dying. And she's never known love. Uh, that's super important right now. Yep, it's very important. We had to spend, like, ten minutes on it. With the, the uh, sort of the glowy camera effects and all that to, you know, frame her as this, you know, sorrowful, suffering woman on her dying day. The Enterprise has now found the asteroid field where the shuttlecraft probably is, but they can't find the shuttlecraft without scanning each of 1,000 or so asteroids individually. So it's going to be a bit. Oh, it, it, it's more than 1,000. It's 7,000. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but like some... Yeah. See, they narrowed it down earlier, and then they unnarrowed it down at the end. So I'm not clear on how that works. You know, just, you know, numbers. They're good at them. There's 7,000 asteroids. There's a 1,000 of them that could support life. Well, we have to scan all 7,000. But you just... Ne never mind. Fine. But 30 per 7,000, which is also 7,000. Kirk is talking to the companion again. This time he decides to question it about loving Cochrane. And can she really love him because she's not human? Apparently only humans can love each other, even though gender is an absolute universal constant. Isn't that weird, guys? <laughs> it's like it's completely non-consistent here. The companion gets sad about it and then disappears. And they're like, oh, it didn't work. And then Commissioner Hedford appears in the doorway. And she's no longer all sweaty. Yep, she's now healed because the companion merged with her to become human. But don't worry, she's still in there and is okay with this, I guess. And she has a spooky voice now, too. Yep. And she was going to die anyway, so don't worry about it. Yeah, so it's like the companion, like kept them from leaving so she could get healed and then just took over her body yeah. basically like that <laughs> i don't think i like this companion's uh, set of ethics here just per you know just personally they seem a little little off now that the companion looks human cochran is way less troubled by it hmm okay i'm okay with the boning now yes this is a degenerate relationship i can get behind <laughs> Hooray! He, in fact, gets all excited about taking her away and showing her the galaxy, and now they're both human and we can be together. Hooray! But she reveals that, nope, still not that human, because this planet is literally keeping me alive and I can't leave. Hmm. So what you're saying is if we were to, like, say, take you away from this planet, the companion engine being might be forced to, I don't know, leave this lady's body or something like that. Is that what you're saying here, or is this something else? Yeah, now that she is, uh... Cured. Yeah. <laughs> but Cochrane decides that he's now in love with her or something, I guess, and they're both going to stay on this planet alone forever. Yep. Uh, just randomly using the lady that was just kind of there as a, as a vessel for your relationship here, guy. Yeah. It's the first woman he's seen in 150 years, so... Man. So, how about that war? <laughs> yeah. The crew leaves because... <laughs> As always, when the Enterprise is looking for people, they find them right as the crisis is over. Yep. <laughs> All right. Everything's good, guys. And what about the war? Oh, yeah, we could send another lady to go take care of it. McCoy remembers there's supposed to be a war, and Kirk says, I'm sure they'll find another woman to deal with it. Da, 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 Star Trek. <laughs> yep. Casual misogyny. Wow. Hooray. Wow. This, ep this episode sucked. The only particular conclusion that I can draw from any of this is that she was not a negotiator. She was a virgin sacrifice. Oh, that would actually make a lot more sense. Yep, so they can just grab any woman. That's why she'd never known love. So they can just grab uh, any woman and take her to the planet and do the same. I didn't put that together in my head. Uh, that's, a, that's, a good, that's a good set of points that are also still terrible, but make more sense. <laughs> Man, so, so where should we begin here? <laughs> uh. Well, I think this is actually reverse Beauty and the Beast. A little bit, though it, you know, it kind of, you know, you know, also has questions of he doesn't know that he's in relationship with this energy being. Well, he's kidnapped and it's obsessed with him and has to get true love and then everything's fine. 
Yeah, I guess that uh, you know, you know, narrowing down to that, it very much does uh, follow Beauty and the Beast. Tale as old as time. Energy beings in your head. We should do a musical episode sometime. Probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> might require might require a little more scripting though. <laughs> Too bad Stargate never did a musical. It's true. Hmm. We didn't get something that's kind of close either. So we could talk about how horrible kidnapping is, or we could talk about gender. We could talk about language. I'm honestly a little stuck on this episode. Let's start with language end of thing, because that one's probably the uh, the less kind of uh about it. Yeah. <laughs> so the Universal Translator is stated explicitly to be reading Buell's brainwaves to get its little dealies, right? Yep. Which is also, brainwaves were a big thing at this time, but they, they basically mean bubkiss. It's like, okay, you can kind of tell you something about the activity level but that's kind of about it there's kind some of... amount of electromagnetic radiation coming off of your brain that is all we can say you know, if you were to sort of get a, a fine-tuned sort of uh, full map of the space coming around your head you might be able to get you know even a little bit more of a, like a map of what things are going on where but that's kind of about it anyway that apparently we can use that in the future to completely uh you know uh, figure out your thought processes to uh uh, ferret out the, the nature of language on communication that way which kind of begs the question that if they have this user universal translator that can do that that's basically a mind reader device yeah yep so it's in star trek they can read your mind if they so choose maybe maybe that's the trick then maybe in every uh you know star trek series you know so so you know i, I got my sort of uh, fan theory that each series is sort of actually being projected through a lens of you know is actually retelling of what actually happened in universe right so you know this is you know, anytime from this point forward in star trek no one is actually using their mouth <laughs> <laughs> it's all done through mental communication through the universal translator <laughs> i mean it must because that's the only way it could function with the freaking translators making your lips work the way that it looks like you're saying you know, p- people aren't badly dubbed constantly. <laughs> yeah, everyone would be badly dubbed. There's in fact a few a few circumstances where they have the universal translator not work for a while, and then as soon as the person starts moving their mouth like they're speaking English, it's working. It's like, oh, maybe I should just move my mouth as I was speaking English in the first place. Yeah, by the night, <laughs> but it made it work automatically. But there is a somewhat interesting point in here with the. Uh, so they say there's certain universal concepts. Mm-hmm. with language in sentient beings and there's actually been a decent amount of research on humans obviously because we are the only things we consider sentient at the minute there's some argument about that but yeah, yeah well, we could talk about do- dolphins later but it does seem like there are some sort of universal concepts in language generally uh probably just based on the fact that we are all kind of geared to pick up language and that our brains are going to tend to do it in a similar way you know, we could also, uh, you know, mention things like the the evolution of language here. Uh, that you know, uh, you know, as far as you know, the languages like English and a lo- lot of stuff from Europe, you know, it's sort of you know has common roots that sort of tie back to you know Proto-Indo-European sort of stuff, and other you know language families are, are similar. And there's uh, even been hypothesized that there was sort of a Proto-World language potentially, though the proof of that is very, very, very sketchy. And it's sort of a uh, yeah, very much comes back to those very, very simple things that exist in pretty much any language, probably by necessity, as opposed to, you know, that's actually just something that was just in that first language. Well, it would be impossible to figure out, but it basically depends on whether language developed before humans started spreading out outside of Africa or not. Exactly. Because if it started forming when everyone still lived relatively close together and was interacting on a single continent, it's likely that there was at least a very similar language. Or a language continuum of some sort. But as far as the the fundamental basics of language go, there was this very interesting study I remember from a while ago where they they showed people pictures of made-up plants. Like I think it was very simple line drawings, like here's a purple plant with green spots or something. But basically alien plants that they just made up. They weren't didn't didn't look anything like real plants at all. Well that's a nictofern. Don't you know that? No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> But that's basically what they did is they gave them they gave people a picture of the plant and they gave them several words of what the plant could be called. And everyone had to pick one of these words. And then afterward, they had to make up a name for the plant themselves. Mm -hmm. And then they took the name that someone made up and they put that in the next round 
for the next person. And more often than not, people would pick the name for the plant that someone had made up previously until it kind of eventually got to, even with nobody really talking to each other, people tended to associate the same word with the same plant. It's kind of kind of a genius there. Yeah, so just the way that we think about language seems to be similar enough that you can sort of recognize a word that someone made up for an object. Now, my question about that study then is, were all the participants uh, native English speakers or all the same language? I don't know, but probably. This seems to be a, a particular blind spot we have in social science that people have talked about as we usually study college kids from America. In fact, I've been studying on the, for those things. <laughs> the, the, the studies I participated in were either things where it's like, here, fill out some forms, or you know, here's a very simple sort of setup, and we're trying to sort of gauge your non, you know, you know, you know direct, uh, you know, sort of more, more adjacent reactions in a certain situation as opposed to what you're actually doing. So. <laughs> Are you? Because they always say it's a memory study and then do something else on you. Uh, well, the, the, the one I had was a pick which one of these two images has more of something than the other. And of course, the trick is they're equal on both, but there's just so much data there. You don't only have a certain amount of time in order to make an answer ah. uh, that you're, brain, you're not going to pick up sort of on that trick, you know, when, you know, because it's all over and done within just a couple minutes. Uh, but uh, you're, uh, it's trying to gauge your reactions to uh, other stimulus that is happening simultaneously, uh, you know, in the situation, you know, you know, whatever it may be, sort of see if there's any sort of in, uh, bias on the results that is uh, being provided to you through that external, uh, you know, input. Well, they just want to trick you. Go, ha ha, tricked you. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> Seems to be a lot of psychological research. Well, this particular study is sort of like, were they able to trick me or not? Was kind of the question. But anyway, <laughs> back to languages. <laughs> As far as this kind of translator thingy goes, I think it's an interesting thing that they say there's certain universal concepts in sentient life because we basically get to define what sentient life is as we consider ourselves to be the only sentient life form. So mm -hmm. anything that we considered to be sentient life would probably have to think very, very similarly to us. Yeah, especially similarly that we could uh, communicate in some fashion. So... It sort of becomes a chicken-egg problem then, where it's like, okay, we're going to say that you are this, and we do this because of the language that we use, and therefore we say that things that are sentient are, are going to have the, you know, these things in their language. <laughs> yep. Which is why we don't consider, like, you mentioned dolphins, that there's also some evidence for maybe some kinds of parrots or corvids or other bird species or... Even uh, some fish possibly have passed the you know self-aware mirror exam. Mm -hmm. You know, the, just the fact that we can't figure out a way to communicate, we consider things non-sentient. Even though there has been research in teaching African gray parrots to be able to communicate with people in plain English, just people ignore it for some reason. I'm bitter about it. Yeah, you know, it's like, but but. We, as people on the internet making a show, we could help spread informa the information and get the, get the word out. Well, it's interesting to me because the, the main criticism that people have for parrot studies is, well, they're just mimicking you. It's like, well, so's your kid. That's how you learn yeah. a language. <laughs> how about you when you were young? How did you mimic anybody? <laughs> Tell me, are you, do you meet these qualifications then? But um, it is interesting that they specifically cite gender, though. Yeah. Uh, especially since though it's not really established yet in the star trek lore canon whatever uh that that gender has some interesting things i guess you could call it with regard to the language of klingon oh yeah <laughs> so when people talk about gender in language it's often like okay male female or sometimes neuter but there's also other types of gender so you can have uh, you know, gender is supposed to male and female as animate and inanimate. So is this a person or is this not a person sort of stuff? Uh, is this an animal or not? An, you know, something doesn't move on its own. And that is also considered a type of gender. And, but then you got inst you know, Star Trek Klingon, which, you know, as far as its development is maybe even not even started this uh, phase in, in, the, uh, in the general canon, it has uh, effectively three genders. Uh, you know, basically... They go as like people, so people that can like yell at you and fight you and things like that, body parts, and everything else. <laughs> yes. 
Klingon has a gender for body parts. Now that's interesting because we use gender to like when we talk about language, like for English speakers, not as much because English is a non doesn't have that concept. Yeah, we we got the the you know, the thing you know the various tags and things like that to you know identify gender when you're you know talking about someone specific, but not like gendered words like. What gender is hairbrush? We don't got that in English, so. Gendered words are still, like, slightly different than gender as we define it amongst people. Yes, exactly. But apparently this episode doesn't quite get that. <laughs> no. Well, they say that male and female are universal constants, which is very I, silly. I, oh, I should have done some uh, research on uh, various life forms on Earth that have no gender. Anyway. <laughs> well, there's, like, snails and... Yes. <laughs> Parthenogenic lizards. And uh, I think we already had in the previous episode uh, you know, a few of those uh, uh, you know, items cited anyway. <laughs> but even as far as humans go, the ideal of a, the idea of two binary genders is actually like not even as common as we want it to be, as we want to say it is anyway. It's, it's a problem when you look at things historically, because if you look at history, you can say, well, there were men and women. And that's it through every phase of history. But that's also a point of view of history that we have imposed on our readings of history because a bunch of stuffy white men in the 20s and 30s were the ones making up this stuff. Like, oh, yes, we have to make sure everything's right and proper and conform to our pre-existing biases about what these uh, past histories are about. And we're just going to sort of ignore things we don't want to actually talk about or admit it happened. So, you know. And I know just, I know offhand, I did a little bit of research on, very little research on this, but offhand I know that uh, there's several kinds of like Indian culture. In India they can have a third or possibly more genders and some Native American cultures had at least three if not more genders. Yep. So the idea of having two genders and just saying that male and female are universal constants is very silly. And also this thing in the show itself is implied to be the only member of its whatever it is. I hesitate to call it a species. It's possibly like a spontaneously formed energy thing. Um, yeah, there's a friend of mine who has uh, you know, created the, uh, the concept of this particular species that is you know, also a plasma being that has kind of ambiguous uh, you know, sort of genders, but, you know, that, but people sort of interpret them as being something. I guess how they reproduce. They split. Oh, they explode, actually. <laughs> See, this doesn't make sense. This is a non-biological entity. It is some yeah. sort of plasma ball or electric field or something. It's not a carbon-based life form. Yeah, as, as far as we can tell, gender is unnecessary for its existence. So it just is because everything has to be male or female, according to this this reading of things. I do have a idea though mm. what if this uh, the companion's idea of gender is spawned entirely from zephyr and cochran's brain that isn't a bad idea it didn't have one until it you know communicated with him and uh, sort of like well i am trying to be your counterpart in some fashion so i will conform myself to your pre-existing uh, view of the role here now i think that the the even the pre-existing view thing gets into this interesting point that I wanted to talk about as far as this goes, is this definitely is a very 50s, 60s establishment idea. We can say pretty, pretty, pretty accurately that they were very on the kind of conservative gender norm idea as a reaction to some of the stuff that was going on in the countercultural movement. Indeed. Uh, that this idea of very, very rigid, strict, two-gender assigned roles actually had its origins much earlier in the Industrial Revolution. Hmm. As before that, everyone is farming and just making what they need and maybe a little extra and it really doesn't matter who does what there's a bunch of stuff that just needs to be done and you do it because it's how you feed yourself yeah we need like to raise these cows and dig these ditches and plant some seeds and you know and oh one of us broke a leg so the other rest of us have to go take care of it It doesn't matter what the job is let's go do the thing then you hit the industrial revolution and you move your production from small individual people to larger industry buildings with your mechanization. and Mass production! In order for that style of capitalism to function, 
you need to get free labor from somewhere because you have the person who's working in your factory, but you need them to work in the factory. They don't have time to get food and clothes and take care of themselves. So you need a support system that basically gives you a free amount of upkeep on your employees. Can't we just like have less hours and better pay? No. Oh. Especially not at the beginning of this, because that's a new thing with the uh, you know, production increases. Except every other country in the world tried to do that. Except yeah. America. <laughs> and then we, you know, infected everyone else. Damn it. Why did we come up with these terrible ideas? So this idea with the this particular, you know, theory of these things is that they basically created the female gender role as the home keeper. To take all of the home labor of taking care of the kids and doing the food and housework and whatever, and they put it onto this one person and said, this is your role, you have to do it for free. So what you're saying is that before, like, you know, the early 1800s, you know, not only were, you know, you know, you know gender roles as far as labor uh, were much more equal, you know, men had, like, actually interesting, like, style choices in clothing and you know you know sure there was like lots of more you know diseases and wars and things like that or just horribleness but you know at least people were like just kind of more cool with each other well you still had inequality obviously because there's been a there's been gender inequality for basically as long as anyone's been able to tell yeah it's like oh this guy can you know use a sword and now he's in charge damn it's a guy so it's he's yeah though there's some iffiness on that as far as the archaeology goes they may not have been looking at some skeletons properly to determine uh male versus female in warrior style burials but that's another topic back then your amount like the amount of work you did was based on just what you needed basically you would do the amount of work that you needed to live and then excess would get traded around uh when you switch the the work value from what you're doing it has a direct input on how you can survive to a more industrial nation where the work you're doing gets you a certain amount of you know capital that you then use to survive you've separated out the work from the thing that's directly keeping you alive and you have to have free labor in there somewhere otherwise the thing breaks down because people can't just be doing the work that they need to stay alive but that's separated out so the stuff that you need to stay alive has to be coming from someplace and you need it to be free because you kind of get a chicken and the egg problem you know, you have to pay your workers to do this work so that they can pay someone to keep alive, but then you have to pay them for this other thing, and where's the initial bit come from? Eventually somebody has to put in a little extra work and uh, just doesn't get paid for it. Yes, and that, so, got put on, <laughs> that got put on women as a very strict gender role, and, you know, basically women have been, have been the backbone of capitalism, though somewhat unwillingly. Yeah, so... So any sort of questions to this, uh, you know, you know, this particular hegemony is going to be, uh, you know, uh, very resisted from those, the, the powers that be then. And we do need to mention that this was sort of more in the, what you would call the middle classes now, even though that didn't particularly exist at the time period when this was all forming. Uh, anyone who was poor enough... Yes, women still had to work in factories because if you're poor enough, you get exploited no matter what. Just someone in the relationship, if not everybody, just doesn't sleep as much. Which is how you get these. And also some of it was just very, very poor unmarried women would have to you know, work in the usually textile industry until they got married. And then in a lot of cases, it was illegal for them to have jobs. So now you, you've gone from being your, your sole breadwinner and uh, you know kind of you know toiling under uh, the, the depression of the uh, your boss you now are not getting paid at all and, and having to do all this extra labor yeah i mean you were probably bringing extra money into the family that was then you know the excuse was that then your dad had to pay the dowry system which is a whole other thing thankfully that's fallen out of favor excellent yes <laughs> But so, yeah, your rigid gender roles are just a upholding of a capitalist system in which you need free labor for upkeep on your employees. And I keep using the term upkeep because that's how the system is going to see you know, people as machine. You need to keep them working and functioning, and that labor has to come from somewhere, and you're not going to do it. Because uh, that would cost extra money. 
And I don't want to pay my employees so much, so you guys figure it out. It's your responsibility. It would, in fact, be prohibitively expensive to do that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I need to still make, you know, uh, enough money to build 12 more factories this month, so, you know. And that's where you get rigid gender roles and this whole, like, upkeep of the thing. And, of course, extra genders, gender fluidity, or even the idea that there aren't just two genders that you have to adhere to very, very strictly, challenges that because you've built this whole system on one gender has to do all the work. So if you have another one, where do you put them? And how does that work into your system? And maybe we should just squash them so that we don't have to worry about these things. A challenge to the, the status quo? We can't we can't abide by it. We're just going to pretend it doesn't exist and yell at people when they think, you know, claim it does. Well, you can't yeah. fold that in. <laughs> if you have, you know, if you have someone that the system thinks of as a man, they have to be working. If they, you know, tell you they don't feel as much like a man, you can't square that. You can't have them go do the other thing because then everyone could. If you can switch like that, why are women doing all the free work? It's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> maybe they, Maybe they shouldn't. <laughs> Maybe, but you can't have that. Where's your free labor going to come from? Well, how about we restructure society so that's not the issue? <sighs> but, you know, we can't we can't do anything, like, sensible here. We have to just sort of pre prevent the obvious from being obvious instead. This whole episode stinks. Yep. <laughs> and it's all, it's not even based on this. I don't know what the point of this episode is. It's not even based on upholding gender roles. It's based on we can take over the body of a sick woman so that this guy doesn't have to worry about who he's boning. <laughs> That's about it. Uh, I guess it is maybe trying to say something about, you know, you know, it's sometimes you're in a relationship and you, you find some major issue that is just so, so untenable, but there's maybe ways to work through it. You can, uh, this is a terrible way to do that. Yeah, if you're in a relationship where you have a strong connection with someone who you're not attracted to, the thing you need to do is make them attractive. No. <laughs> it's okay to have a close personal relationship with somebody that you're not physically attracted to. You just need to make sure your partner understands that. Isn't this like the uh isn't this just the like the wish dream of the like 50s successful man like you can take your emotionally caring wife and merge her with the body of your secretary oh yeah that one well that sucks even more yeah, yeah no wonder they they all like this I don't know. so sometimes Sorry. we get episodes that aren't saying much and they lead into something interesting and sometimes we get episodes that aren't saying much that are just too badly written to go anywhere with this is kind of that that latter group here though we, we could uh talk about a, a less terrible episode by uh, you know pointing out uh, you know explicitly again that the Galileo shuttlecraft has crashed again, man. What's wrong with this cursed shuttle? Well, what else are you gonna do with the thing? You've got this shuttlecraft. <laughs> it's it's it's. I think it's pretty much the same set. They maybe changed a couple things on it, but it still feels sort of like just a bus. That's a room. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's always the same set. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's sort of. It's it's kind of a, you know just amusing. It's like oh. Wait, it's taken this this long to get back to this thing? Okay. <laughs> there was a random bit of trivia on this, that this. This is the first time in the entire series that Kirk has not set foot on the Enterprise. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess energy being a companion, you, you did something that maybe helped the galaxy? <laughs> yeah. Let Scotty be in charge. <laughs> but I... Scotty, unfortunately, is in his, in his uh, interest of being the most useful uh, crew member is going to go find the captain. It's so sad because the the scenes that they had on the Enterprise with Scotty just figuring out what to do were more entertaining than the rest of anything else. Because yeah. there's something to be said for the kind of next generation genre of drama where it's competent people who are good at their jobs figuring out how to do their jobs. Okay, you know, so this is a puzzle and we're trying to figure out the puzzle and we need to sort of step through a series of questions and you know figure out some answers in order to sort of you know you know you know build up the the, the greater picture there and you know, you know we can show off some of our characters making mistakes in this but also figuring out how to overcome those mistakes yeah i feel like you know, this is a genre that we have lost why can't we get this please <laughs> It's like, you know, it's like, uh, you know, the, the police procedural is sort of, you know, is genre that's kind of still going strong even now. And it sort of is reliant on sort of certain tropes and things like that. Uh, and it, you know, a lot of it comes down to there are competent people that 
are usually competent to do their job, but sometimes not, depending on what kind of series you're going for, that are, you know, you know, doing through this and trying to solve a mystery. Just do that, except in a sci-fi context, and you got, you know, sort of that next generation sort of a vibe again. But, you know, it's not really a thing that happens too often anymore. Yeah, no one wants that anymore. You have to be dark and gritty and playing mm-hmm. about more fist fights. ice yeah. or whatever they do on The Expanse. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> In The Expanse, though, I, I could give a little bit more leeway to because, uh, you know, coming from a novelization adaptation sort of situation, there is still some of that is there are competent people. They're just maybe not necessarily working together. <laughs> I might have to give that another try at some point. I couldn't make it through the first episode of that. Well, I'd say that it gets uh, you know, much more interesting over the long haul, but there are still points where like, what? <laughs> so. I always hated that. So many people told me stuff like, you know, Walking Dead gets good after the first two seasons. Like, why am I going to spend 10 hours watching this before it gets good? I think I found myself really enjoying the expanse well before the, you know, the end of the first season, but... There's still a few bits that are like, this is a little gory for me. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so just a warning about that. All right. Maybe when I run out of other shows. All right. <laughs> but I feel that we've we've strayed. A little bit. Because we're talking about the experience and not Star Trek. That usually means that it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show. Hey everybody, welcome to the game show portion of the show once again. We've tallied up all the points and we have some prizes to hand out to our winners for their, their various antics in today's episode. If you can call it that, ho-ho! Our first award is the Appropriate Reaction Award, which goes to Nancy Hedford for quite rightly freaking the heck out when she discovers that this random guy she just met has brought them all there against their will in some gambit to get himself off the planet. And this has, you know, probably doomed her to a very quick death. What does she win, Gepwin? She wins the singing teapot, because, you know, you may as well be kept company by singing furniture and cutlery if you are trapped in a bad Beauty and the Beast situation where you're just one of the side characters who dies because you're not important. Hmm. That's a very good uh, award there. Uh, A prize there. Um, In fact, uh, you know, maybe I should rename this the Be Our Guest Award. Hmm. Our second award is the No Hard Feelings Award, which goes to Zephyrin Cochran for getting over that whole century and a half of misunderstood brain sex. What does he win, Gepwin? Oh, I think now he's having some hard feelings. Hmm. <laughs> Cochran wins, I don't know, some, whatever a brain condom would be. Practice pre- safe brain sex. I think that'd be a tinfoil hat. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Our third and final award for today is first uh, Kill First, Try Diplomacy Sec, which goes to Kirk for jumping into the whole murder option first before even trying anything else. What does he win, Gapwood? Kirk gets to come to our time and be gifted an honorary position as a U.S. foreign policy advisor. I think that would uh, suit him well, actually. Yes, unfortunately. Hmm. Well, that's it for the uh, you know what I got here. Uh, take us away, Gapwood. Uh, thank you all for joining us on this, the galaxy's best game show thingy i'm messing up my outro already oh well don't worry it's all messed up today (laughs) Uh, it's all terrible the whole thing's just terrible you can all go die in an energy being or something get but i think i think we deserve an award this week yes sitting through this yeah the 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 infinite suffering award (laughs) (laughs) and thank all of our guests for joining us on the galaxy's favorite game show get us out of this segment So, uh, a quick confession. Um, the first time I tried to watch this episode, I actually fell asleep at the last 15 minutes. <laughs> I, I had to rewatch it like, like a couple of times. So, yeah. uh, that <laughs> happened to me with Cat's Paw. Oh, huh. So, I, I guess this is something that happens now. <laughs> We're getting into one that, that I've heard of and should be interesting and introduces a bunch of characters and aliens and things that we see in the rest of the series. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think I may have seen this next one. As the next episode is Journey to Babel, which I haven't seen, but I think it's about the the like Enterprise carrying a bunch of ambassadors around. It's the first introduction of Spock's father as one of the ambassadors. 
So you get Sarek. It's the first introduction of the Tellarites, who show up occasionally. And the first introduction of the Andorians, who I think are only heavily featured in Enterprise. Like little antenna guys with the blue skin and things like that. Yeah, I don't know why they're not used as often. They were they were like a big deal in Enterprise, and then I really have only seen vague references to them in any other series. Oh yeah, there's uh, the Andorian uh, soup that we're having this is for today's evening meal. Uh, and then are there Andorians on board? Nope, no one has seen them in centuries. <laughs> <laughs> they're apparently a founding member of the Federation, but, that's... but no one cares. Yep, no one no one gives it. Maybe they were uh, horribly all wiped out in some uh, off-screen war that nobody talks about. I mean. It's too much to hope that since we're getting a diplomatic episode, they're going to actually talk about something interesting and have a discussion with maybe some moral things they have to figure out as different species with different moralities try to all come together and work under the same banner. But I bet that it devolves into some sort of assassination plot where they have to punch people in a hallway. Um, I'm going to say probably the latter. Yeah. But hey, you know, you know, you know Babylon 5 babble speaking of yeah you know uh you know had a lot of the diplomacy stuff and be punching people in the hallway so maybe we'll look out i hope so but we can find out next time on watchers of tomorrow next time on watchers of tomorrow meet spock's dad you have been listening to watchers of tomorrow a podcast on science fiction media Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on YouTube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Izix, on youtube.com slash drizix, and Twitter at IzixLP. Music is Waveform and Morris Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, Please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs>